we are in the midst of a prophetic pause um, away from our preaching on Luke. Uh, so we are currently in a series called We Cling to the God Who, right? Um, and when we as a preaching team were considering what is it going to look like in this prophetic pause in order, or like what, what does our church need? What are we going to talk about? Uh, we kept coming back to some of like the characteristics of God. We were like, man, it would be really good to focus on who God is. Our last prophetic pause was a little bit more focused on like how we respond to God. And so let's talk about God, right? Um, but we wanted to do it in a way that wasn't just like, hey, here's a bunch of knowledge about who God is, but really like in what ways uh, can we learn about God that actually impacts our daily walk with the Lord um, and in ways in, in, a, in a country, in a world that is, in, feels increasingly chaotic? Um, what can we learn about God? What can we learn about a relationship with him that helps us really like cling to him, right? And so that's where this sort of we cling to the God who uh, series was birthed out of. Um, we, I read a, a Twitter thread, most of my reading, um, is on via Twitter threads, which is not good. Um, and there's this pastor who uh, will shall rename nameless, um, but he posted this thread that was or this this tweet that was like, um, people who don't come to church because they're tired are like uh, a car that doesn't stop at a gas station when it's on empty. And before you do any like spiritual yummies, like oh that's good, um, there was actually a really really good sort of like response in the thread that was just like hey. Instead of like maybe blaming people, the people who come to church about like being tired, um, let's consider like what is the church doing in response to refuel people, right? And so that's really what this series we hope is about, um, is like how can we talk about God? How can we talk about relationships with a God in ways that don't just inform us, but transform the ways that we're renewed, um, that where we can come and we can actually feel rested at church, right? Um, so I say all that to put a little bit of pressure on myself to uh, help you sort of see God in a good light this morning. So good luck to me. Um, so if that doesn't happen, don't tell me. But we did, we want to be a refuge in the city, right? We want to really transform the ways that we see our relationship with God and the way we see Jesus. So this series came about we considered, like, what are our own strongholds? What are the things in the midst of our own anger, of our own difficulty, difficult times, our own pain? Um, what are the things that we hold on to in our relationship with God that keep us clung to him? So I'll be honest, writing this was really, really difficult because in order to even consider that, I then have to consider, like, what are the painful moments in my relationship with God, right? Which are just, like, not moments that I really want to consider on a daily basis, I had to access points of difficulty, sadness, anger, and ask myself, what is it in these moments that kept me pursuing Jesus? Not perfectly, of course. In fact, my pursuit often felt stagnant in these seasons. But what, at the end of the day, was my stronghold? And before I get to my stronghold, you can maybe see it on the screen, a little bit of a spoiler alert. But um, I think I wanted to talk quickly about like, what has caused me to question my relationship with God the most. And I already sort of mentioned it, um, but it, it's when I encounter injustice in this world. Um, when I see that things are not the way that they are, or that they should be, when I see uh, particular people groups, or just even people in general experience things um, that, that are unfair, that are unjust, it, it really actually it ca has caused me to just be like, God, where are you? God, do you care? 
God, like, what are you going to do about this, right? And that's a really, really hard question to ask. Um, and I think uh, in these situations, uh, in situations like the Buffalo shooting, uh, they would leave me despondent, make me feel as if God doesn't care. So when I am feeling this despondence, I have to find places in the Bible to highlight that God does care. And so hopefully I can highlight that for, the, uh, that for you this morning. Places like Exodus, Amos, and places in uh, the Bible where God makes covenants with his people and keeps those promises. Um, so when I was in college, uh, I went to this sort of like big, uh, what are those called? Conference? <laughs> Words are hard. Um, I don't know why they gave me a mic. But uh, I was at this big conference, and this pastor out of California, Mike Erie, gave this talk on covenant. And so this morning, uh, I'm actually pulling a lot from him. I just wanted to give credit where credit is due, so you guys don't think I'm that smart. Um, but he talked about God's covenantal character, something that has been a deep stronghold for me since that talk. So this is our focus this morning. We cling to the God of covenant, the God of promise. So this morning, I will be using a lot of covenantal language. I'll flesh this out a more bit here now. But what is important to know is that if you have never heard of a covenant, a covenant is just a promise uh, or a binding agreement, right? So I just threw it up there. Uh, so a really, really easy example is marriage, right? We may, and because covenants have a relationality with uh, one another. Like, it's not just an agreement, but it's almost like an agreement to enter into relationship, right? And so marriage, it's like, what are you agreeing? You agree till death, or sorry, you agree like for richer or for poorer, right? In sickness and in health. And then what is the like binding agreement? Until death do us part, right? And so that's a really, really easy example of a covenant. Each side pr promises fidelity to each other regardless of the circumstance. This is a covenantal relationship, a binding agreement, a relationship with one another. Are you with me? Covenant is a major theme in the Bible from beginning to end. Why? Because it points to what God is like. It shows that God is relational. He makes covenants with his creation, with people, which is a pretty wild idea. It also points out that God is a God who keeps his promises you can trace promises God has made and the ways they have come to fruition, which is actually what we're going to be doing this morning a little bit. And then it shows that God is a God who cares. I don't have a time to make this argument, but like, there's a reality that God could have just left us to our own devices, right? We have turned away from him, and as a result, he could just leave us alone. But God continues to make covenants with his people to point out that he does actually care. So this morning, I hope to highlight these truths about how God, through a covenant, shows his character to us. So what we're going to do this morning, there's going to be a lot, but hopefully the story is riveting, and some of you may have heard it. I ask you just suspend that sort of like knowledge of what you know about the story. Um, we're going to dive into Abraham and God and a covenant that they make. Uh, but before I do that, let me go ahead and pray. Lord, I pray this morning that you can be put on display. I pray that uh, I am led by your spirit and that uh, these words... Uh, that I present this morning are the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, Lord. I pray for, uh, yeah, your words to be remembered, not mine, your glory, not mine, Lord. Your son's name I pray. Amen. Okay, like I said, if you know the story of Abraham, um, I want you to suspend a little bit of what you remember this morning so you can hear it with a little bit of fresh ears, right? Because we're going to go to one of the really weird parts of the Bible, um, a really weird story, which I, might, I love, um, 
But I want to warn you, there is a lot of context this morning before we get to relevance. You guys okay with that? Even if you weren't, I don't know what to tell you. Um, can point the door. No, um, please don't leave. Um, so we're going to start at where we meet Abram is what he's called uh, in a lot of our passages this morning, right? So Abram is first mentioned in Genesis 11, 27 through 30, where it says this. And I apologize, I made the text as big as I could. And then the transition from PowerPoint to, what do we use again? Keynote, Keynote thank you. Yeah, I, oh, I can't remember, I don't know. Um, it just made it a little smaller. So if you can't read it, just listen to my beautiful voice. Um, I don't know why you laughed. Okay, this is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran became the father of Lot. Uh, and then there's a little bit more mention. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah. Uh, she was the daughter of Haran. Now, Sarah, here's the, here's the important part. Sorry, I'm skipping a little bit. Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive, right? Now, that last line sets up the rest of this morning. Sarah, Abram are married. Sarah cannot have children. She was not able to conceive. So then right after we get this lineage, we go straight in. We don't get much about Abram at all. We just get his parents. He's married to Sarah who can't conceive. And then all of a sudden we get God talking to Abram directly. Now we don't get really why uh, God talks to Abram, but we get it anyways. And here, here's what uh, God says to Abram. So it's Genesis 12, one through three says, the Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you, aka leave everything you know and go to a land I'm going to take you to. And so what is God going to do if Abram does this? I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God essentially asks Abram, like I said, to leave his home. And then he said, if you do this, if you follow me, if you just believe that it's going to be good, I'm going to give you three things. What are those three things? He promises Abram land. He promises Abram that he will become a great nation. And he promises Abram that God will bless Abram, right? A um, little bit of side note, you ever see blessing? It generally just means like relationship. Like, so you guys know the I can't even remember where it is. Deuteronomy, maybe, where it's like, uh, make the Lord, may the Lord like bless you. May He make His face to shine upon you. So there's parallel language to say like, blessing is the same as God shi shining His face upon you, right? So God is is promising that He will notice that He will turn His face toward Abram. You with me? Now this is great and all, but God is specifically asking Abram and Sarah to leave, and that He will make a great nation of them, right? Now, they bring a couple of family members, but the problem here is that Sarah is barren, right? She's unable to conceive. She cannot have children. So he must mean something else, right? But multiple times, God clarifies to Abram that God will make Abram's offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky and as numerous as the dust on the ground, right? AKA, God is going to give them a child who will bear offspring and they will bear offspring, etc. God is going to do uh, what they were unable to do themselves. You with me? I don't want to say you with me a lot. I hope you are. Um, we then get this long story. So God has just made this promise, the three things. We then get this long story in Genesis 13 and 14 where Abram has to rescue Lot, 
from a couple of kings. And this is really important because it sets up, we're going to spend our time in Genesis 15, but this is really important because what it sets up is Abram interacts with these kings um, and to one king, he gives 10% of his things in order to get Lot back. And to another king, the other king was like, hey, take as much as you want except for my people. And Abram does not take. And that's really important because um, I would point to him if he was here, but Teun actually really, really helped me understand this theme in Genesis, in our class in Genesis. Um, he, he points out that uh, within Genesis, there's this theme of giving and taking. Giving is always related to being similar to God, right? It starts in Genesis 1 where God said, let there be. God, let there be light. Let there be land. Let there be water. It's the same as God giving, God creating. Does that make sense? And then the opposite of that happens. Humans are introduced and they begin to take, right? Adam takes the apple. Cain takes his brother's life, right? And then we see that throughout, throughout, throughout. So when it's saying that Abram was giving it would not take, it's actually a huge thing because it's like, hey, you are actually being faithful to God. You're being like God and that you are not taking like everyone else in the Bible or in Genesis was taking, okay? So what happens? And we're, we're now going to hunker down in this really weird passage in Genesis 15. So Abram does not take, and then we get into Genesis 15:1, and God says this, God comes back to Abram, See, this is the really tiny one. It's like, these are like the warnings on your pill bottle, right? Like, uh, may cause heartburn, like bad teeth, death. Yeah, um, that's not what it says. So it says this, so I'll just read it to you. It says this, after this, the word of the Lord came to Abram. So after he gives and does not take, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and I, God, am your great, very great reward. So after Abram gives, God comes to him and says, you have acted justly, and as a, as a result, your reward is me, is God, right? Not Jimmy, God. Um, and what an amazing idea, right? Like, that's so cool. God is like, here, I am your reward. This is your blessing, right? But let's look at what Abram says. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram continued, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So he's like, Cool, God, but what about the kid? Right? What about the promise? It's pretty funny, but it's also understandable. Like, Abram is currently between promise and fulfillment, right? God has made a promise, He has not yet fulfilled it. So Abram is in this waiting period where he just has to have faith and trust that God is going to provide. But he still wants to know. He's anxious to see his family expanded. He's only getting older, but he still talks to God Almighty with zero chill, right? Like, it's just like, okay, but where's my, like, I can, yeah, you're there, but where's my kid? Um, so let's look at what God responds. God says this, then the word of the Lord came to him, Abram, this man, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. So he reestablishes the promise of the child. And then he continues. He took him outside and said this, look up at the stars and count the stars, if indeed you can count them, which, uh, spoiler alert, Abram could not. Then he said to him, so your offspring shall be, right? So he's saying, I'm still going to keep this promise. And then it says, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. 
And then God continues and he says, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur. So that was his original hometown, uh, Ur of the Chaldeans, to give you this land and to take possession of it. And then Abram comes right back to God. So he believes God about the child. And then God is like, okay, also the land. And then Abram is like this. Sovereign Lord, again, that's funny. He keeps saying that. How can I know that I will gain possession of it, right? So to recap, God goes, I'm your reward. And Abram goes, where's my kid? And God goes, I'm going to bring your kid. And Abram goes, cool. And then God's like, I'm going to bring your land. And then Abram's like, how can I know? All right? So that's where we're at in the passage. So then God responds. This is the really, really weird part. So this is all pretty normal. It's like, well, as normal as interacting with the Lord of the universe is. Um, face to, not face to face, but like word to word. Um, so let's see, though, where it gets weird. This is how God responds. Uh, and this is the rest of our passage, and then we're going to dive into it. So the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves on opposite sides to each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down to the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. And the sun was setting. Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated um, there. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to uh, your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here to the land, for the sins, sins of the Amorites have not yet reached its full measure. So God remakes the promise of the land, right? And then it continues. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces, between the animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give you this land from the wadi of Egypt, uh, which is just like a valley, to the valley, from the valley of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates, the land of the, and then he goes into all the ites, which nobody's got time to listen to those. So, right, so God is saying, okay, I promise that I'm going to give you this land, right? He says, bring me the animals. And then uh, Abram brings him the animals, cuts them in half, and then some weird things happen where some items pass through the animals. So what in the world is going on here? Why was God's response to Abram's question of how he will know he would get the land for Abram for Abram to bring God these animals, right? Well, we can also see from the text that Abram knew exactly what to do with the animals. So there is some sort of cultural thing going on here. And that cultural thing is called a blood covenant. And God was initiating a blood covenant with Abram. See, back in Abram's days, they didn't have lawyers or written contracts, mostly because all the writing was on stone, right? Um, and so people would initiate different rituals to symbolize a covenant or a contract or an agreement between two parties. And this blood covenant was the most serious way you could initiate um, a contract or a covenant. See, in a blood covenant, uh, if you want to go to the next picture, you would do what Abram did. You would dig a shallow trench. You would take the animals um, and it was usually the exact animals that they mentioned, and you would cut them in half. You would put 
one half, you would cut them in half long ways. Uh, you would put one half on each side. I apologize for the graphic picture. Um, Should have warned you about that. Uh, and then the pool, the blood would pool in the middle, right? And so in the, in the case of uh, maybe a greater party making a covenant with a lesser party, the greater party would dictate the terms of the covenant. They would say, uh, I will do this, this, and this. You will do this, this, and this, right? An exchange, uh, relational exchange, right? So they would dictate the terms. If the lesser party would agree, the greater party would walk through the trench where the blood was, right? And what they would say was, if I do not uphold my end of the covenant, of the bargain, let what has happened, let, let what has happened to these animals happen to me. And it was even a little bit further than that. It was like, you will do to me what has, we have done to these animals, right? So the greater party would pass through. And then the lesser party would go. And they would say, let you do to me, if I do not uphold my end of the covenant, let you do to me what I have done to these animals. You guys, does this make sense? Yeah, so it's like, like signing something that's saying, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do this. They just happen to sign it with blood, right? Now, the Bible confirms uh, that these were the uh, sort of the results of not upholding a blood covenant. So bl blood covenants happen. Um, let's look at Jeremiah 34, 18, and 20, just so you guys can believe the Bible and not me. Um, it says this, those who have violated my covenant, this is God talking to his people, those who, have not or those who have violated my covenant and have not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they have made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two and walk between its pieces, right? The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests, and all the people of the land who walk between the pieces of the calf, who said they would uphold their promise and did not, I will deliver into the hands of their enemies who will kill them. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. So, this is a serious thing, right? You're saying, I'm going to do this or kill me, right? You guys with me? So God initiates his covenant with Abram, and then what happens? It says that Abram falls into a deep sleep. So deep sleep here uh, is a good way of saying that, like, Abram was having a vision. So Abram is having a vision, and then it says that a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. This is another Hebrew phrase, which just, says, just means that Abram was terrified, right? So Abram is having this vision, and he becomes terrified. Why is Abram terrified? Well, he's making a blood covenant with the God of the universe, right? Like, that is a huge deal, and that is terrifying, right? Because Abram, who already has shown that he believes God and believes God is powerful, uh, now believes like, yeah, this could happen to me if I do not uphold my end of the bargain. But it's not just that. Let's look into, like, what are they promising one another? What are the covenant promises here? Well, what, what were God's covenantal promises? Land, child, blessing, right? So God promises land, child, blessing. Now, I want to give you guys a little bit of a disclaimer um, because I think it's worth, like, diving into this yourself if you want to like really decide where you fall. There are people, uh, very, very smart people, who come out slightly different on the meaning of this passage mixed with Genesis 17. So Genesis 17 is essentially God initiating a blood covenant with Abram again. Some people say they're two separate um, situations 
that, and they're very smart people. Uh, they say that like this was an unconditional sort of covenant, and then God makes another one with Abram later. A bunch of other smart people who I actually tend to agree with think that this sort of Genesis 15 and Genesis 17 are the same covenant. So I don't think the outcomes of who God is are much different, but I just wanted to give you that disclaimer, right? So we're going to proceed with Genesis 15 and 17 being sort of not a retelling of, but a reaffirmation from God to Abram of this previous covenant. You can, if you feel so inclined, look at it to yourself later. But Genesis 17 gives a little bit of what God calls Abram to within a covenantal relationship. Genesis 17 through uh, 1 and 2 say this. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So God, again, confirms the children, right? But what are the promises uh, on Abram's side? Like, what does Abram have to do here? I'll pretend like I heard you. Yes, faith, like walk faithfully and be blameless, right? What's another word for blameless? Sure, perfect. Yeah, that's what I said too. Um, yeah, so perfect. So think about this. Abram is terrified to walk through the path going back to Genesis 15 because he and his descendants on their end of the bargain are called to be blameless, to be perfect, and I think Abram is a realistic man, right? And he is terrified because he knows he can't do that. He wants the promises from God, but he knows he's, he cannot be perfect, right? So Abram is sitting there in terror, and this is where it gets juicy. As we all would, like we would all sit there. We're, we're not all juicy. We'd all be scared, sorry. Um, because he knows if he touches the blood with even his big toe, right, he is accountable to being perfect or let what has happened to the animals happen to him. So then what happens? A smoking fire pot. You want to go back to verse 17? It's the next slide. Yep. We have the pieces there. The animals are apart. A smoking fire pot and a blazing torch pass through the pieces. What's going on here? Well, who does a smoking fire pot represent? Let me ask you this. Who, the greater party always goes first. Who's the greater party? God. So we know the smoking fire pot represents God, right? And we actually see in other spots, like when Moses is on Mount Sinai, um, when the Egyptians are being led through the desert, God is often um, shown or represented through smoke or a cloud, something of that nature, right? So we have God passing through first saying, whatever, ha uh, if I do not keep my end of the bargain, you can do to me what we have done to these animals, right? Abram, you can do this to me. Not going to happen, but still. Um, and then who goes next? Generally, the lesser party goes next, right? So who do we think the blazing torch might represent? Yeah, we, so we might think Abram, right? However, Ab two things. Abram is right there. He can, scared or not, he can get his butt up and walk through the pieces, right? Second thing, there's not a single time in Scripture where fire represents humans, humanity. In fact, Every time the fire is to represent something or someone, who do you think it is? God. It is God, right? So what we have here is that the smoke goes through, representing God, saying, Abram, if I do not uphold my end of the bargain, land, descendants, blessing, you can do what has been done to the animals to me, right? 
And then God goes through again and says, Abram, if you and your descendants do not uphold your end of the covenant, walk faithfully and blamelessly, then you can do what has, been, what has happened to the animals. You can do that again to me, right? Do you guys, like, is this hitting? Because, all right, we're a little quiet this morning. I'm getting a little excited. Like, God is saying, if I don't uphold my end, I deserve death. God is also saying, if you don't uphold your end, I deserve death. And there are many smart people um, and myself who believe that it was at this moment that Jesus of Nazareth was condemned to die. God walked through twice because God was saying, I will pay what I also demand. What God was calling Abram to, to be blameless, was a good thing, right? Blamelessness means fellowship with God. Blamelessness means being like God. But God also knew that Abram and his descendants would not uphold their end of the bargain. God knew, so God walked through twice. God also knew that it was a covenant that was destined to fail, not because of him, but because of them. So God walked through twice. And God is a good God. He's a gracious God, a God who keeps his promises and initiates relationship with us despite the cost. So God walked through twice. So what happens? How does this play out? God upholds his end of the bargain, right? He does it. He gives them Isaac. Uh, Abram and Sarah have Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. All of Jacob's sons become Israel, right? Uh, and his descendants become numerous. You can dive into it in your own time, but in the New Testament even, uh, it says those who follow Jesus um, are also descendants of Abram. So Abram's descendants continue. And then uh, he, he gives them, he, he leads them out of Egypt like he said he would. He gives them land, um, and he continues to be in their presence despite their sin, right? And of course, what happens on the end of the people? The people are not faithful, and they're not blameless, right? But then we have, a, uh, this is called the first covenant in the Bible, not the Abram one, the next one I'm going to talk about, where he establishes it with Moses, but it's really the second covenant mentioned in the Bible um, between God and people. So God establishes a covenant with Moses, and he sets up a way within that covenant to remind people that blood would be the cost of lack of blamelessness, right? So every day at 9 a.m. and 3 p.m., the priest uh, in that community every single day would sprinkle blood in order to remind the people, every day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., sprinkle blood to remind the people that the cost of the covenant was blood, right? The cost of the people's sin was death. Years, years, years they do this. Generation after generation after generation. Every day, 9 a.m., 3 p.m., the priest would sprinkle the blood until one Friday when at 9 a.m., a criminal was nailed to a cross, spilling his blood first at 9 a.m. That same man at 3 p.m. dies. And right before he dies, he shouts, according to John's gospel, it is finished. The word Jesus used there, finished, right, was meant to indicate 
the completion of a contract. It was a legal word to initiate the end of a covenant. So what was finished? I believe that Jesus is referring to that price for Abram and his descendants, not upholding their end of a covenant. Blamelessness and faith, that price of death, you shall do to me what we have done to the animals. That price was paid that day. See, I think there's, in some ways, we, we do live in a similar time to Abram, right? Between the fulfillment and the promise, or the promise and the fulfillment in that order, actually, right? There are lots of things that we uh, have been promised by God that have not been fulfilled. Uh, one that's actually really, really hard for me, because I love it, and it's like, I want this, uh, is Revelation 21, 3 and 4. It says this, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear. There will be no more death. There will be no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, for the old order of things have passed away. Right? That is true of the new heavens and new earth. We've been promised that, but it is not true now. Right? And I just think about how untrue this currently is. Right? We've experienced it at a national level recently. We're experiencing it at a global level with war. Right? But my stronghold is that God kept his promise to Abram and he will keep his promises to us. Jesus is the physical embodiment of God's covenantal character where he says, I will uphold your end and mine. Now, church, do not hear me say that in the midst of injustice, we turn our, our shoulders because of the future like realities, right? Just because we have a future hope where this is going to be the case does not mean we don't care about it now. But as we fight for justice, as we care for the marginalized, oppressed, forgotten, as we face uncertainty and are angry, we have a God who we know keeps his promises because we have seen Jesus, right? We have seen the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. We have a God who walked through twice. Cling to that God, church, because we have to. Now, I want to give you two really, really short action steps for this morning because this was a lot. The first one I just, I just said, look to Jesus, right? The founder and perfecter of our faith. I know this sounds silly to say, but I, I just don't know if I would be a Christian if, if it wasn't for Jesus, right? And I know that's a weird thing to say, but it's just like, man, like Jesus is the only thing that keeps me holding on sometimes. It's, it's generally not the American church often, right? It's Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for us, him upholding the blood covenant, him upholding his promises to us, right? Look to Jesus. And then the second thing, and this one's a little bit harder to explain, and I don't have the time, but I'll, I will a little bit because I still have the mic. Um, approach God not necessarily always appealing to his mercy, although obviously we can appeal to that, but appeal to his justice. Now, let me, let me say this well. If you're um, you're probably sitting there thinking like, okay, what do we, justice is what we deserve, right? What do we deserve for our sin? Romans says the wages of sin is death, right? So if you're like, Jimmy, if I'm not appealing to God based on mercy, but based on justice, I am saying, God, I have sinned. Therefore, put me to death. And that's, would be true <laughs> uh, if it wasn't for Jesus, right? 
Um, let me give you a really, really short example. I uh, work from home, and I have 45 minutes uh, to eat. And generally, we are very blessed. We have some food in the fridge. Um, however, I get very bored with food um, easily, and I just like to spice up my life like four times a week. Uh, and so I like to go to the only place I can get to in time, which is Burger King, um, which is a great place. Um, however, I have a tendency to leave my wallet in our car. Like, I just put it in the middle console. Don't use this info against me, please. Um, and my wife takes this car to work. And so Jamie knows that if I really want BK, I would text her like, hey, is my wallet in the car? She's like, oh, Jamie's getting BK again, right? Um, but so let's think about it this way. Say um, Steve. Will you, yeah, Steve, we'll use the name Steve. Steve is the cashier at BK. Good friends, right? Um, say I go there daily. Uh, or four times a week, whatever, and I get my normal Whopper and fries. Uh, and I've, I walk up one day, and I have forgotten my wallet. And I'm like, man, Steve, I forgot my wallet. He's like, look, you're here every day. You pay. I'll just charge you tomorrow, right? Like, that's, that's Steve being merciful, right? He's like, we'll figure it out later. Next day, I walk up, and I'm like, man, Steve, forgot my wallet again. And I don't know how to use Apple Pay because, like, technologically illiterate sometimes. But so I'm just like, Steve, forgot my wallet again, man. And he's just like, Jimmy, come on. Whatever. Here's your food. Um, but we'll, 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 we'll figure it out later, right? Third day in a row, I walk up and I'm like, Steve, you're not going to believe me. And he's like, get out, right? Like eventually, and I'm not necessarily saying this about God, but eventually his mercy runs out, right? Now, what if, what if Jamie knows this, right? And Jamie goes to Steve. Um, she's like, look, I know my husband's going to leave his wallet in the, in the car. Here's like a $50 gift card. Refill it every time it runs out. Now, what if I go up um, and I'm like, hey, Steve, like, can I get my Whopper, right? Can I get my Coke? A Coke, actually, I would have to go to McDonald's. Much better there. But uh, you get the point. Um, and he's like, yeah, that's fine. Like, do you want to supersize it? And I'm just like, yeah, absolutely, right? Um, and then he just he swipes the card, right? And then I go the next day. And Steve's like, hey, Jimmy, you can do this every single day if you want, right? There's a difference here because I'm appealing to Steve's mercy versus Steve's justice, right? And, and what is the difference in my countenance towards Steve? I'm like, shy. I'm like, frick, man. Like, I, I, got, I can't do this. Like, sorry. Can we do it again? Versus like, if I am appealing to the justice, like it's right because Steve has money for me, it would be wrong for him to withhold food from me. Um, I, I can be like, Steve, yeah, give me two Whoppers today, right? I can, I, can, I can approach confidently. It would be wrong of God because of Jesus to continue to uh, withhold some of this grace from us, withhold his mercy from us. You guys, you guys understand? Because the price has been paid, it would actually be unjust of God for him to not to continue to let us come to him, right? So I, I, I ask you this morning, I appeal to you to appeal to God through justice, to be like, God, I know I have fallen short of your glory again, but I can come to you because of the price that Jesus paid because you walked through twice. Look to Jesus, church, and come to God appealing to justice.